Good morning, Grace. As you just saw within that video, we're talking about the subject of worship, knowing that we can worship God wherever. And the question is, is have you worshiped this week? Uh, we are in our series entitled I Church, Connecting the Believer to the Body. And one of the ways, uh, uh, we're looking at also the characteristics of what does it mean to be the body? Not just be connected, but what does it mean to be the body? What, what does the body of Christ look like? What are some of its characteristics? And one of them is worship. And today we're going to be talking about worship and praise. And I, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles as we're going to be camping out on the same passage for the next several weeks. That's in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And, and through them, the, I mean, this is the, the first church, literally. And we get a glimpse, a snapshot in time of what the body of Christ looks like. And one of the things that we see is that they, they, they were worshiping the Lord. Now, it's interesting, we all worship something. We all praise things. Do you know that? I mean, do you know we were created to praise in every which way? The, the thing is, is, we all praise a lot of different things. You know, we praise what we enjoy. For, for example, I want you to stop and think for a moment. What is your favorite movie? Think about it. What's your favorite movie? Anybody want to share it? Star Wars. Okay, there you go. That's good. That's good. What, Jonathan, did you say Willy Wonka? Was that Willy Wonka? Uh, yeah, Paula. The original True Grit. Wow. Okay. We all, we all have movies we enjoy, right? And what do we do when we enjoy something? We tell people about it. Just like last night, I was working on uh, some touches on my message, and uh, uh, my mother-in-law came in, and she's telling me about a movie that she went to saw and how much she enjoyed it. And she just she enjoyed it so much, she wanted to tell other people about it. You know, that's what we do. We, we praise what we enjoy. The question is, 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 what is the truest object of our joy? Do we really enjoy God? I mean, praise is the natural response, or should be the natural response, of those who have been redeemed. You know, on my desk, I have a, a load of books that talk about worship, probably more than any other subject about worship, because worship is one of the most fantastic, awe-inspiring things. And, and it's interesting, the more that I've read, I mean, I've read through the scriptures numerous times. Um, I mean, I go through the Psalms usually twice a year, and it's all about praise and worship of God. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read, some things don't make sense to me. It's when I have someone come by and act kind of like a guide to me and tell me and show me how wonderful it is. It's like, it's like being to a museum. You ever been into the, the, or, or, or the Art Institute? Ever been to the Art Institute? Anybody been to the Art Institute? Okay. And sometimes I walk in and I'm like, that looks like my two-and-a-half-year-old painted that. Because we, we don't have necessarily the, the background to really evaluate what good art is. You know? And we need someone to come by who's like a really good artist and explain it to us. And the more that we learn, the more we admire how amazing it is. Right? It's like looking at Mono, Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. I look at that and I'm like, this, I, I don't get it. <laughs> it's like a bad grade school picture. You know, she's like waiting for the camera to shoot her or something like that. But it's when someone comes by and starts telling me about Da Vinci and explaining to me what's in that beautiful painting, the more I marvel at it. See, we need that guide to help us walk us, even through the scriptures, to show us what it means to worship God. And for me, as you, if you've been around me for any period of time, that person is C.S. Lewis. And he's not just for me, but others. John Piper it really points to C.S. Lewis as one of the biggest influences on his life. He's a pastor in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, God has just given him an amazing ministry. And he, he talks about how Lewis had shown him, in essence, kind of walked, like walked through the scriptures with him, pointing out all these different things and bringing all these pieces together that just showed us how wonderful God is and showed us that we all praise what we enjoy. I have a quote that I want to show to you before we get into our text. This is what Lewis uh, I'm going to have several Lewis quotes today, so just kind of go with me, because I find that no one else has written more about the subject in more of a poignant way that speaks to us today than C.S. Lewis. And he said this, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. He's talking about when he first got saved. He didn't get why the Christians were to praise God and why the Bible said time and time again, praise, praise, praise. And he said it was like a vain woman Asking for compliments. That's what he thought God was like. God is saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. And he didn't get it. He's like, I just didn't understand it. 
And he says, it strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of giving compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. That's what he thought praise was. But he said it's so much more. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. All enjoyment. And, and that's what he's talking about. We, we praise all the things that we enjoy. He goes, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. We get ready to praise, but we're, we're too afraid what other people are going to think. So we check it. He says, the world w- rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside and how beautiful it is. Players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical parsonages, people, or personages, excuse me, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? We invite that question all the time. When we enjoy something, we, even when we see a movie, wasn't that great? It's like watching a Bears game. Okay? I did not praise the Bears last week. I didn't want to listen to sports radio. I didn't want to talk about it because it was awful. But when they do well, I'm like, did you see that game? Did you see that game? Because we're praising it, right? That's what we do. We praise what we enjoy. And when they do well, or did you see that play? Wow. And we want other people to share in that enjoyment. So much more with God. He says, wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, this is where he gets a little bit difficult to understand, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. In other words, what he's really saying there is this. We praise the things that we just see in everyday life. These things that are temporal, like a game, or a poet, or a movie. And these things are temporal. They're infinitely less than Almighty God. And we should praise Him even more. I think the problem that many of us have, though, We've domesticated God. We've emasculated him. We're bored with him. He's not boring. We've got bored with him. We're, we're like the people in line this past week at the Mac store. They want the iPhone 5. Okay, all these people are waiting in line. That's how people's first experience of who God is. They're so exciting. But then what happens in six months? We want the newest thing. It's outdated. We feel it's outdated. Oh, I've moved on. I need to go on to something else. Right? Some people, that's how they approach God. It's like, I get bored with God. I've heard it all before. I've seen it all. I want the newest thing about God. But that's not God. See, I, my, my contention is, is that we really truly don't know who God is in all of his fullness. Because if we did, we would marvel all the time. I was listening to this, uh, this uh, video this past week called Rejoice and Shout. It's a chronicle of, of African-American music, uh, worship music in America. And uh, one of the, the men there, he says, the reason we praise God, because we, we have to audibly do it with our voices, because if we heard the voice of God, we would fall down flat. We could never respond. It would be so awesome. It would be so amazing. If God spoke to us, we couldn't handle it. It was so beyond us. See, we don't realize how amazing God is. Today, what I invite us to do is to go within the scriptures to see how we are to praise God and see Him anew. To see Him in all of His brilliance, in all of His wonder, in all of His awesomeness. That He is better by Himself than every single enjoyment that this world has to offer, offer put together. God is so much more awesome, so much more unbelievable. In the early church, they knew that. And they made worship part and parcel of who they are. Now, some people think, oh, worship's just a part of being a Christian. Some people say, well, the real business is to win souls to Jesus. That's what I'm about. I want to win souls to Jesus. Let's leave the worship part, but let's get souls for Jesus. And we, we, we get, every time someone gets saved, we wear it like a pelt. We think that we're doing really well. But, you know, worship precedes sharing the gospel. Did you know that? And it transcends it. Did you know that? 
I want you to see this wonderful quote by John Piper, and then we'll jump right into our text. Um, he writes this from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's actually in the very big introduction. He says, missions, meaning like sharing the gospel with those who have not yet heard him, is not the ultimate goal of the church. It's not about saving souls. That's not the, the first priority. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. It's interesting. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Think about that. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, Let the nations be glad who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will praise uh, I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. It's all about worship. All of it is about worship. So what does it mean to worship? What does it mean for us? Because, you know, worship is, as I mentioned before uh, of this, in the early part of the service, worship is the most sacred thing that we have. Did you realize that? There's nothing more, nothing better to offer God, but our worship. This past week, I've been reading it. I've mentioned before you, I've been studying uh, early, American, or early American history, um, and I've been reading the biography of Alexander Hamilton. He was a genius. I, I mean, a genius. You don't hear a lot about him, but he's responsible for setting up our financial system. He's responsible for putting into place the U.S. Mint, the, the central, uh, the U.S. National Bank. He put into place, he put this all together. He was uh, George Washington's aide-de-camp during Revolutionary War. A matter of fact, he was his, also his ghostwriter, constructing his um, farewell uh, address from office. He was by far and away just this genius. He even put into place what became the U.S. Coast Guard. Some of the, many of the things that we do today are in large part because of him. And he, he was this towering genius of a man. Matter of fact, men hated him because he was so much smarter than them. I mean, he also authored the Federalist Papers and was helping, uh, was one of the main individuals responsible for calling the Constitutional Convention and what came out of, or the Constitutional Convention, what eventually became the U.S. Constitution. And he was probably the foremost interpreter, interpreter of the Constitution. But it's interesting, with all of his genius, the one thing that he could not handle was his name to be run through the mud, an insult to his honor. He couldn't handle it. He would go berserk if someone insulted him, and he would go after them, no matter how low they were or no matter how high they were, because in his mind, his reputation was the most sacred thing he possessed. He would challenge men to duels in a heartbeat, which was part of kind of the ethos of the day, because he held that his reputation was the most important thing. And it's interesting to me, some of us think our reputation or our family or any of these other things might be the most important thing, but the real most important thing is our worship. It's Im more important than anything else. I can't reiterate how important our worship is. Again, that's why Satan got kicked out of heaven. We see veiled references to it in Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. You see it in the book of Revelation chapter 12. You see this, th that he wanted worship for himself. He was created, in essence, to be a worship leader of the other angels, to lead them in praise of Almighty God. But he started looking at himself going, you know what? I'm pretty cool. I deserve praise. And he rebelled. He was kicked out of heaven because of it. And now he's still wanting our worship. Did you know that? That's what he wants. That's why he tempted Jesus. What was the last temptation that he had for Jesus? I'll give you everything if you bow down and worship me. I'll give it anything that you want. All the kingdoms of the earth, I'll give them to you. Give me worship. It's the most sacred thing that we possess. And as I mentioned earlier, 
the angel in the book of Revelation as John gets ready to bow down and worship him after he's seen this, all of this amazing stuff. The angel says, no, don't do that. I am but a servant. It's our worship, the most sacred thing that we have in the early church movement. I want us to look and turn to our passage in Acts. We went through it last week. We're going to be going through it again for the next few weeks. Please stand with me as we look at Acts chapter 2. We'll only be focusing on Acts chapter 2. I know it says 4 in there, but we'll only focus on Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and of course it is our tradition here to stand for the reading of God's Word. The Holy Spirit to Dr. Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you right now asking you to speak to us. And not only us, but the other campuses as well. Lord, I pray for my brother Tim Bedall. Lord, I know he's, he's been sick with 102 degree fever, and yet he's preaching your word today. Give him strength. Lord, for those ladies that are at the retreat at Silver Birch, I pray that you bless them and you touch them in a very profound, amazing way with uh, a manifest sense of your presence. And Lord, today we pray that you be within this message. May your Holy Spirit speak to us through the words of God that are being preached. May your words lay heavy upon our heart. May we respond in kind, joyously reflect back, reflecting back to you what you mean to us. And Lord, may we consider you once again anew, seeing who you are. Lord, give us a vision of your glory. May we see you high and lifted up. May we respond in praise because that is the natural response of those who redeem. And it's only the redeemed who can truly worship you. We pray our blessing on our time together now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let's just jump right in and look at this. And we look at worship. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is worship? I mean, it's, either, it's easier to describe. It's very hard to define. And I, I have pages and pages of different people who have defined it. Scripture doesn't give us a definition of what worship is, but it gives us a very huge description of it. And I've, I've endeavored to give some definitions to you just to kind of show you where we're headed. And, and uh, I want to show you, first of all, this is uh, Donald Husted. Now, you've probably never heard of Donald Husted, but you, if you've been in church for any period of time, you have used the things that he has put together. He has been the editor of 14 hymnals. And he uh, was a professor at Olivet Nazarene University. He was also an adju- uh, a, a professor at Wheaton and Moody Bible Institute and Southern Baptist Seminary, or I think Southwestern. He is considered one of the foremost experts on church, and, uh, church worship and music. He's been ministering for six decades. He was also, by the way, just to add to that, he was the uh, organist full-time for Billy Graham at the Billy Graham Evangelical Evangelistic Association for several years. So he's been around worship, he has worshipped, he's taught on it, he's written on it, he's edited it, he's an amazing guy. And he says this, and he's still alive, still kicking, um, and he says, Worship is a full confrontation with the self-revealed God of the scriptures with ample opportunity to respond. Worship is any and every worthy response to God. Now, what I find fascinating about this definition is not necessarily God of the scriptures that I marvel at, but the self revealed God of the scriptures. See, we never know who God is unless God told us. Do you realize that? We never know who God is unless God revealed himself through his word, the Bible. And it's through the word of God that we see the person of God and how we are to respond and worship to him. In essence, it's our guidebook. It gives us an understanding of who he is. And the first part of worship or how we worship we see that worship involves us responding to God's self-disclosure. That's the first point in your notes there. You can follow along with me if you so desire. It's, it's responding to what God has revealed of himself to us. We are responding to what he's shown us of himself. It's simple as that. Now, it has two parts. And I want to focus, uh, draw out Warren Worsby, who was the pastor of Moody uh, Memorial Church for many, many years. He says this, 
Um, worship is the believer's response of all that he is. Mind, emotion, will, and body to all that God is and says and does. This response has a mystical side in subjective experience. So we do experience the being of God. And it has a practical side in objective obedience. So there's subjective and an objective to God's revealed truth. It is a loving response that is balanced by the fear of the Lord. And it's a deepening response as the believer comes to know God better. In other words, the more that I come to know him, the more that I will grow in experience of him. But there's an objective side to it. Now, that's what I want us to see here. That worship of God has two, two sides. You have first the objective side and the subjective side. Okay? Now, it's interesting that this is drawn out in John chapter 4. If you, if you are familiar with the scripture in John chapter 4, that should be a lightning rod for worship. You should bookmark that in your Bible. This is Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. Do you remember that? If you are familiar with the story, Jesus interacts with this Samaritan woman, a woman who had five husbands. She's living with a guy now that is not her husband. She comes at the hottest time of the day when no other women would be there to get water. And Jesus shows up. He has a divine appointment with this woman to give her a lesson on worship. And he corners her, in essence. He corners her in an argument, and he, he starts uh, telling her about who he is, and he tells her that um, to go call her husband and come back, and she says, I don't have a husband, and he tells her she has five husbands, and, that, and the man that she's with now is not her husband, and, and she, she gets nervous, just like we do whenever attention gets focused on us. She starts trying to get the conversation on something that was controversial. She wants to talk about how Samaritans and Jews don't interact together and that they debate on the location of where it's proper to worship. Is it in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? And she says, woman, the hour is, is coming and has now come when the, the worshipers of God will no longer worship in Jerusalem or here, but the, but the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit and he seeks, the, he th- seeks worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. From John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. So we see here that we are to worship in, according to truth, which is the word of God. So it has an objective part to it. We learn what the word of God says about God. And then we respond in kind, applying the word of God, teaching us how to worship, acting as the guardrails, in essence, guiding us to worship God in the most pure and holy manner. But we also worship in the essence of our spirit, with who we are. We can't put on airs and try to con God. We have to really deal, let God deal with us for who we are, the essence of our sin and the depth of who we are. We can't play games with God. There's no reason to try, but we try it all the time. We try to fool God. There's no one we're trying to fool except ourselves. We have to worship in spirit and in truth, the essence of who we are. But let's look at verse 42 for a moment in Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. See, worship at its heart is expressing devotion to God. That's that second point in your notes. We're to be expressing devotion. That's what we're to do, expressing to devotion, uh, our devotion to our Savior. Because do you know that? When we do that, God communicates his presence to us. Did you know that? Because it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to us. That's what C.S. Lewis said. I want to see us that. It is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. It's through our worship that God shows himself in our midst. See, we don't just go through the motions. When we sing a song, when we give, it's not just walking through the motions. I, I was listening to a special last night on Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. Before his conversion, he went to Rome and he gets ready to celebrate the Mass. And he truly believed in the presence of God celebrated in the Mass. This is before he leaves the Catholic Church. And he's, he's, he's really thinking of this holy moment that's going on. And, and God being there. And one of the other priests, he just knows how corrupt it is. The priest in the back goes, get on with it. There's no sense of the presence of God. And he realized it had become corrupt. They were just going through the motions. It had become empty, useless ritual. That can happen in any place, by the way. I don't care what church you're in. We can take any ritual and have it replace the presence of God. Cultivating the presence of God. See, what we're to be doing is expressing devotion to Him. To be worshiping Him. 
And as we worship him, worship him he reveals himself to us. It's interesting, Lewis writes about this. He, he, he writes this quote here. When we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, right? When we, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. In other words, we're gonna, we have a tendency to do what makes us happy. That's what we want to do. We do things that make us happy. One of the reasons we get married, it's not just about obe- obedience, is it? I hope not. Some of you are like, yeah, no. <laughs> no, it's because we believe it's going to make us happy, do we not? That's, some people go in really wide-eyed, it's going to make me so happy. And then when it doesn't, they have a hard time. But it is to bring some measure of happiness into our life. We have to cultivate it, but it should make us a some certain measure of happiness. He says, those divine demands which sound to our natural ears most like those of a despot and least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us where we should not want to go if we knew what we wanted. He demands our worship, our obedience, our prostration. Do we suppose that we can do him any good or fear like the chorus in Milton that human irreverence can bring about his glory's diminution? That's a big word. Write that one down. That simply means making it less than. I had to look it up. I mean, less than. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. That's profound. But God wills our good, and our good is to love him with that responsive love proper to creatures, and to love him we must know him. And if we know him, we shall in fact fall on our faces. So what he's saying there is this, is that we are to delight in God, but we don't have a desire to delight in God because we really don't know who he is. And God commands us to delight in him because in, when, we, when we delight in him or when we seek to know him, we seek to worship him, he starts showing us who he is. Because why? He desires our joy. He desires us to be happy. But he desires us to be happy in himself. Because there is no true happiness apart from him. The problem that we have is that we try to find happiness in other stuff, which is sinful. But God keeps calling us back. Worship me, because that's where your true joy is. If you worship me, you'll find out who I am. That I am greater than all of these other sinful things that you've tried to pursue. But we fail. We fail time and time again. We need to find our joy in him. Yet the call is not only to prostration and awe, it is to reflection of the divine life. A creaturely participation in the divine attributes. Did you know that? God enables us to be a participant in the divine nature, according to 2 Peter 1.3. We are participants in God himself. Because God gives his spirit to us when we participate in him. We experience God in all of his fullness. That's why in the book of Corinthians it says, after a while we will not look upon him with veiled faces, but unveiled faces. First John says that we will... We will see him as he is, for we shall be like him. Can you imagine that, being like God? I'm not exactly sure what that means. We're not going to be God, that's for sure. But we shall be partakers of the divine nature. This is deep waters. We are bidden to put on Christ to become like God. That is, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we think we want. God wants to give us himself. Once more, we are embarrassed by the intolerable compliment, by too, by too much love, not too little. God loves us too much, more than we could ever know, that he's willing to give us himself. But we keep going, and we're, instead of saying that we want steak, we're ready to go eat dirty chicken nuggets. You know? God wants to give us so much more. So, if we're to be devoting ourselves to him and seeing that, God, seeing that God wants our happiness and only the true happiness that comes from him, we can see this devotion involves many things. I'm going to kind of go through these rather quickly. First of all, our devotion involves confession of sin. Confession of sin. Now, it's interesting. You can see it w- implicit within this passage the fact that they were breaking bread together meaning, means that they, had, they were having communion in their homes, which not just was communion, but it was like a communal feast. And they would take one segment of it, and they would have a communion with the Lord, the Lord's Supper, in essence. But that involved confession. Now, we can see that they would confess their sins to one another. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, if we look at who the, the apostles handed the baton to, that's known as the early, I mean, we also call them the early church. These are the successors of the apostles. They left us a document. It's one of the earliest Christian documents. It's not scripture, but it's one of the earliest Christian documents. It's called the Didache. 
and it was done in about 150 A.D. And this gives it, this document, it's also called the Teaching of the Twelve to the Nations. It's not inspired scripture, but through this document, we get a picture of what the early church, after the apostles, considered uh, to be one part of their worship. I want to show you this quote. But every Lord's Day, this is what they were to do, this is the, the church after the apostles, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure, but let no one who is at odds with his fellow come together with you until they, they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profane. In other words, you're to confess your sins not only to God, but you're to be reconciled with your brother. Because remember, our relationship with God involves two different things. Remember, it, and we talked about this in the Ten Commandments. The first part of the Ten Commandments deals with what? Vertical, right? The second half of the Ten Commandments deals with what? Horizontal, our relationship with men. Because our relationship with men shows and demonstrates our relationship with God. If we are not in right relationship with our brother or sister in Christ, then we're not going to be in right relationship with God. So we need to make sure that we are confessing our sins to one another. When's the last time you confess your sins to a brother or sister in Christ? Many of us don't do it because we're afraid what other people may think. We're so busy putting on hypocritical faces. That's not what God wants. God wants us to be transparent. That, means you, that doesn't mean you're transparent with everybody. You don't walk in and say, good morning, welcome to Village Bible Church. I sinned against God last night. You don't do that. Okay? You find a brother or sister of Christ that you can, you can be vulnerable with, you can talk to, preferably to someone of the same gender, and then share with them about your struggles and have them pray for you and hear their struggles. So we see that it involves a confession of sin. And we also have our ability to express our devotion through communion, through prayer. Communion through prayer. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's a definite article there, and it's also the plural form of prayer. They were praying together as a body, not just as individuals. So often with our individualistic Western American spirit, we think it's about just Jesus and me, and it's not. It is not. It is about us as a body. When Jesus saves you, he's like, he's just saved me. That's it. It's me and Jesus. No, he saves you and puts you in a body. A body. There are no Lone, lone Ranger cowboy Christians. It's a body. We don't like to think that. It goes against our American independent nature. But God talks about it and puts us into this body because we need the body. I'm amazed at how many people think that they don't need the body. We do need to be the body. It's amazing, as I've, said, I've heard it said before, and perhaps you've heard it, they said you can tell how popular the preacher is by the attendance on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the programs are by how many people are there Sunday night. You can tell how popular God is by how many people are at the prayer meeting. Now, we, we don't have a formal prayer meeting. We've just started something up on Wednesday at 5. For those at 5.30 wants to come in here, just come in and pray. There's, n- there's no set agenda. People just come in and pray. We've opened it up and say, come in and seek God. We want to pray together as a body. If you have time, you don't have to be here for, for hours. You could come in for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Just come in and pray. And then leave whenever you need to leave. Because we do want to be communing with God in prayer and through prayer. Now, notice they were together. Look at, look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the entire body. Skip down to verse 44. The, all, who were, all who believed were what? They were together. Look, look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple. What's the word? Together. They were together. They were together. So in essence, worship is not something we do just whenever we feel like it. But we see that our worship is also to be continuous or to be communal in demonstration. Communal, meaning that we are the body. They weren't by themselves. We're to be the body. I have a friend of mine. God bless him. He was a friend of mine from college and his wife called me. I think I mentioned him last week. Called me the other day. Had a question on something, uh, just some history that they uh, had uh, about an event. And, and she was talking to me and I was talking to her and I said, well, how are you guys doing? She goes, well, good. We don't go to church anymore. We just do it at home. And, and uh, yeah, but things are going great. And I'm like, I, I just sat there stunned. Because what they've done is they've set themselves up to be the authority, thinking they don't need the body of Christ any longer. 
I was so grieved to hear them say that. But yet Christians do it all the time. We think that we can just be apart from the body. And it's to be communal. Communal in demonstration. It's also to be continuous in observation. Continuous in observation. Notice verse 46. And day by day. They did it all the time. Not just one day a week. And we think, I can't do it every day. And we're busy people. But I'm amazed at how hard it is for us to get together just one time a week. It shouldn't be that way. We're to be together. That doesn't mean you have to be here every night of the week because we are very busy people. And some people say, well, I'm too busy and I don't have time. No, no, no. You are too busy, but you have time. You're just busy with the wrong things. Do you have time to watch your favorite TV show? Yes. Do you have time for your hobbies? Do you have time to watch the game? Do you have time to do this? Do you have time to do that? Yes. Well, you've made that a priority over God. It means you, you're sinning against God. What's the priority? What is the priority? And, and we're to be doing it together. I love Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25. Throw that up there for me. And let us consider how. How can we do this? How can we stir up one another to love and good, good works? Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, we try to come up with new ways to do this. One of the ways that we've tried to do this is through generations. We try to get the body to be together, to stir up one another, to do more, to be together, to, to truly, because we don't spend a lot of time together. Here, it comes on Sunday morning, and it's me talking to you. But on Sunday night, it's us talking to one another. Being the body. We're trying to come up with new ways. That's another reason why we do, we do fast fellowship. Just to get to know one another. And the more we get to know one another, the more that we want to grow and tell other people about who Jesus is and grow in our own relationship with God. That's why the proverb says, is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 17. So, it's to be continuous in observation. It also is to be celebratory in expression. Praise. Some of us don't look like we're praising God, but we're forced to attend an insurance convention. I mean, we don't sing, we look up, and we're, we're blank slate. And I understand that some of us have grown up in traditions where there is no emotion allowed. Okay? For those that have grown up in a Catholic background or Lutheran background, there wasn't a lot of shouting going on. Those that come from uh, some Hispanic backgrounds, African-American backgrounds, more of a charismatic background, there's, there is more of an expectation of celebration. And we should learn from those brothers and sisters. doesn't mean that we go around and we, we you know, I love it when people start learning how to raise hands. They, uh, you know, Tim Hawkins, he's a Christian comedian, he talks about it. He even has a lesson on how to give. He goes, you start off low. This is holding the TV. This is holding the TV. This is holding the TV. Holding the TV, big screen, big screen, big screen. And he, he starts getting higher and higher. He says, this is the Rocky touchdown. <laughs> okay? And, it, and it, he's, he's pointing, he's making light of it. But it really, we should, we should try to do new expressions of worship. Paul even says, lift up holy hands. I, had, I, I admonish the men to lift up holy hands to the Lord. It's an adoration, an act of adoration. It's okay to do that. Now, you may not feel comfortable. That's all right. Take a baby step. But try. Try something new. Because it is to be celebratory. We're to be in, we, we are to be enjoying God. It should be the natural inclination of our heart to enjoy God. I mean, when we talk about our, our favorite movie, we have no problem being effusive, or I mean, being a praiseworthy, or, or watching the game. I always love watching the game, watching guys watch a game, and what happens when there's a touchdown? <laughs> we don't do that with God at all. Why not? He's so much greater than, than uh, you know, Brandon Marshall catching a touchdown pass. So much greater. Some way we think that's inappropriate. That's not. We're to enter in joy with thanksgiving and praise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now, there are times that we are to be silent and be still to know that he is God. It's both. Not either or. It's both. We're to make sure that things are done decently and in order. To be celebratory in expression. Lewis again. He says this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. In other words, something feels wrong when we can't share it with other people. You ever seen something so beautiful and you look around or something so amazing and you're like, I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody about this. I gotta, I, if I see the game by myself, 
I'm like, ha, I'm calling or texting, did you see that? We want to share it, right? I mean, it's like seeing the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen in your life, and there's a longing within you if you're by yourself. You want to share it with someone. See, it, but completes the enjoyment. It is, it, it is, it's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Next slide there. Is it there? Oh, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care no more for it than for a tin can in the ditch to hear a good joke and have no one to share it with. You've done that, right? You hear a funny joke? You can't wait to tell it to somebody else, right? We should want to do that to God. We should want to tell people about who God is because there is, and some people say, well, that's, that's flippant. No, there's a kind of happiness, you see it's always said, that makes you serious. The happiness that we find in him. And we want to share other people. And that's what praise should be. Celebratory in its expression. But the question is, is who is Jesus? Because we, we, I talk about that. I, I mean, I've heard people say that, well, I, I don't need this praise and worship stuff. I don't need the church. I just have Jesus. And, and we, they're, they're afraid of talking about all these other things like theology and doctrine and things like that. They're like, I don't need any of those things. I don't need any of the stuff you're talking about. I just need Jesus. Well, there's a problem because as soon as you just say, I need Jesus, you've, you've now said something about doctrine. See, what did the apostles do? They devoted themselves, or what did the early church do? They devoted themselves to the what? The apostles' teaching, right? In other words, they learned doctrine. That's what we're to do. To be worshiping God, we need to learn doctrine. Now, some people think that doctrine is a four-letter word, or it's the most boring thing imaginable. They hear doctrine, their eyes glaze over, their head goes back, they're like, oh, I just have to get through this. But that's not what doctrine is. Doctrine is the instruction on how we can love him more. It's like talking to my wife, okay? Uh, she's a little freaked out right now. But um, when, I, when I talk to my wife, men, we can be pretty dense. Can I get an amen? <laughs> the women are like, amen! We can be. So my wife, some, there are certain things that women do that they, they, other women understand. I don't know, it's like this collective hive brain that they have. And women can say something, and another woman knows intuitively what she means. The guys are like, I don't get it. I don't get it. So I've learned to come to this conclusion. I go to my wife, and I go, okay, I know that you're expecting me to have the intuitive female brain right now, but I'm pretty dumb. Can you just tell me what you mean? And she's like, yes. <laughs> and she tells me. And, and I learn how to love her more by doing that. She gives me instruction on how I can love her, how I can make things right that I've wronged. And that's what, see, that's what doctrine does. It's, it's instruction to us. We're to be learning doctrine. I want us to look at this quote here by Kevin Van Hooser. He's a brilliant, I, he was my, one of my professors uh, when I was in seminary, and I have to say he's the, the most brilliant man I've ever met. Just brilliant man. And he said this, Christian doctrine is necessary for human flourishing. Only doctrine shows us who we are. Interesting. Doctrine shows us who we are why we are here, and what we are to do. That's doctrine. The stereotype of doctrine and draw, as dry and dusty cuts a flimsy caricature next to the real thing, which is brave and bracing. Doctrine deals with energies and events that are as real as, and events that can turn the whole world we know upside down. Energies and events into which we are grafted as participants with speaking and acting parts. In other words, doctrine shows us that there's a divine drama of redemption and gives us our part in the play. Teaches us what our part is, that God is the central character. He's the central character, but it shows that how we are to be towards him, who we are, what our part is in this divine drama of redemption, how we are to act toward him. Van Hooser, again, he says this, the purpose of doctrine is to ensure that those who bear Christ's name walk in Christ's way. For from far from being irrelevant to life, then doctrine gives shape to life in Christ. It tells us how we are to live and what we are to do. Doctrine shapes us. It provides the contours of our walk with Christ, bringing color to the portrait of who he is. But see, not only does doctrine inform us, because if it just informed us, it would mean nothing. We have to respond to it, which means we need to adhere to his decrees. That's the next point. 
We need to adhere to his decrees. See, we're not, it's not suffice or sufficient enough for us to just learn about who God is. We need to respond to what he has told us about himself. It means obeying the word of God, adhering, applying it to our lives, letting it sift down into the dirt and dry soul, soil of our hearts, breaking it up by, by dousing ourselves in who he, who he is living in light of the future grace that he will give us and delighting in who God is and how we might please him. Now, worshiping him means also living in a way that is pleasing to him, and that means that we are to be fulfilling our duty to delight in him. Did you know that? That's our duty. Did you know that, Carl? Did you know that, David? You did, because you read John Piper. But God has given us a duty to delight in God, to find joy and happiness in God. Did you know that? I mean, we have this wrong picture. Like, again, like we talked about last week, some people think that coming to church is like going to the dentist. I mean, it's like, I got to do this, but I don't want to do it. But see, God's so much bigger than that. It's not just going through the dry motions. It's experiencing God in all of his fullness, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the greatest being ever that the mind could ever possibly conceive, but it's even greater and beyond that. The God who created the mountains and the rivers and all of these wondrous things that we see within our world and even our own planet and all of the other planets that he's put into place. God created it all. He is so much bigger than we conceive him to be. God delights us to delight in him. God wills our happiness, but our happiness can only truly be found in him. That's why Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And he's not talking about some perverse, sinful desires. He's talking about our desire in him. Because see, that's, that's the truest expression of happiness that we can find, is in him. So give us the desires of our heart, the essence of what we are looking for. Did you know that people are always looking for God in some pretty amazing and sometimes strange ways? Blaise Pascal, the great uh, philosopher, mathematician, he wrote this. He was also a Christian man in his pensies. He says, all men seek happiness. We all seek happiness. Every one of us seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of something, some, some going to war and of others avoiding it, it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It's interesting, G.K. Chesterton said it this way, all men are seeking for God, even those who knock at the door of a brothel. We're all looking for that which is going to make us supremely happy. The problem is, is that we're too busy looking for it in the wrong place. Only true, lasting, substantial happiness and joy is found in God and God alone. He is the source, the fountainhead of happiness and joy. We need to find our happiness in Him. We're all looking for God. God demands that we see our, seek our happiness in Him. And we seek our happiness in Him by worshiping Him for who He is, and then He reveals His presence to us. Now, it's interesting. I want us to look at verse 43 for a minute. See how God reveals His presence to the early church. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You know what happened there? They were experiencing the power or the presence of the divine experiencing the presence of Almighty God. Awe came upon every soul. Did you know that? That when God's people join together, that God shows up? We don't think about this very often. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you as an individual experienced the presence of God? When's the last time that we as a church have had a holy hush fall upon us because God revealed himself? God did that. Some people say, hey, whoa, you're, you're embarking into charismatic territory. No, I'm embarking into biblical territory. Let me, let me show you 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to show you this passage. This is the early church. Now, this is in reference to spiritual gifts. I'm not going to focus on that part right now, but I want us to focus on one thing. God shows up in the middle of this. Actually, let me, is it C.S. Lewis that I have first? Throw that up there. Oh, to remind us, it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. But look at 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, I already said the experience of presence divine, but 1 Corinthians 14. If, therefore, the whole church 
comes together. This is Paul writing by the Holy Spirit to the Corinthians. He says, In all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Okay, people hear you speaking in tongues, they're going to hear you and think you're nuts. Simple as that. That's the Travis Fleming version. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Why? Because the presence of God convicted him and brought his sin to light. Are we experiencing the presence of the divine in our church? See, this isn't the only passage. I want to show you another one. This one's going to seem a little bit strange. 1 Corinthians 11.10. I don't think you've ever heard about this in church. Okay? And uh, some people are going to revolt just by looking at the passage. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. Okay? Now, what does that have to do with cultivating the presence of God? This is, this is what it is. That symbol of authority it's talking about, especially within the, the Corinthian culture, was saying that she was under submission to her husband. In other words, it was kind of like a wedding ring, right? It was showing that she is in submission to her husband. Now, interestingly enough, the husband and wife relationship is a picture of what relationship in Scripture? The, the, bride, the church, I mean, Christ and his bride, right? And cr- the bride of Christ being submissive to the, the bridegroom, which is Christ himself. Now, it's in that submission, that working relationship, that God shows himself. Now, what he's saying there, because of the angels, in other words, the angels are present in the corporate worship of God's people. So when we sing the song, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place, I can feel the brush of angels' wings, because I see glory on his face. What he's talking about there is not necessarily wearing a head covering. He's talking about being an authority like a wedding ring. But, the purpose of it is to show that we as a church are the example, a reflection of that marriage relationship. And as we are submissive to Christ, the angels are, resp- are responding in, in wonder. That angels are present in our midst right now, present in our midst. Think about that. Experiencing the presence of the divine. Now, this, is just, this just isn't an experience, but an expression. Now, we're not to be chasing an experience. That's not what we're to be doing. We're to be chasing God. The experience should be a byproduct of our chasing God. So to be chasing the experience is wrong. It's wrong. If I'm just trying to experience God, I just, I, I, it's like a junkie looking for a high. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to fi- get God himself. That's what we want. And when we get a hold of God, God shows himself to us. Now, sometimes this comes a different way. Sometimes it's a holy awe. Sometimes it's a joyous celebration. We can see all of these examples throughout church history and in Scripture. There's a holy hush. Experiencing the presence of the divine. Now, we also see that worship, experiencing the presence of the divine, involves three things. I'm going to give you all three, and then I'm going to try to uh, draw these out. speaking, giving, and becoming. Involves three things. Experiencing the presence of the divine involves three things. Speaking, giving, and becoming. I want to show Don Husted to you again. Speaking, giving, and becoming. For those that didn't get it down. Speaking, giving, becoming. He said this. uh, Our worship is conversation between God and human beings in the life of the believer. Giving to God the sacrifice he asked for. Loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And loving our neighbors as ourselves and becoming more like God by offering Him the totality of our lives, body, emotions, mind, and will, in order that our bodies may truly be temples of God, that our spirits may be moved by His Spirit, and that our minds be as the mind of Christ, and that our wills may be one with God. In other words, it's this. There is no true worship without transformation. If we are not coming to God with the fullness of who we are, then we can't exper- expect to experience the presence of God. It's only when we offer up to God who we are and we encounter God for all He is that we are transformed. We become new creatures in the sight of God. And that we surrender our wills to His own. Our, we surrender our sins, even our suffering. It's when we go in communion with Him that we're transformed. It's like prayer. 
You know, and uh, Oswald Chambers said it best when he said this, and this isn't up there. Oswald Chambers said, some people believe that prayer changes things. The truth is, prayer changes me, and I change things. And what he was saying there is a reiteration of this, saying, when I go into the presence of God and I truly seek the will of God, I abandon my sinfulness. Then I want to do what God wants, and God starts to change me. In other words, I'm, I'm laying myself at the operating table telling God, do what you will. Perform whatever surgery is necessary to make me into the creature you want me to be. See, so we are, we are speaking the truth of God's word is what we're doing, and God is speaking that to our heart through this proclamation. We are giving ourselves to him. This is what we, we do. We, we lay ourselves down. Remember, we are to be living sacrifices, as Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says not conformed any longer to be to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then lastly, it's becoming. That's when we become more like him. Remember First John? He says, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. God is continually conforming the image of his son, creating the son of God in us anew each and every day. That's where we participate by taking up our cross day by day, dying to ourselves, living to him, for him. That's truly worship. Speaking, giving, and becoming. I want to close with this last quote by Lewis. Or actually, Jack Hayford. I've got two quotes. Jack Hayford. Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one being worshipped, or the one worshipped. That's pretty profound. The more that we, we put ourselves into the presence of God, He communicates His presence to us, not only as individuals, but as a church, and we desire to be more like Him. We want to become like God. Now, C.S. Lewis is my last closing point, or quote here. He says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers. Call that up for me. Is it coming up? Almost having a technical difficulty. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. It is, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. For glory means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be united with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be in the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the true index, the truest index of our situation. At present, this is the best part of the quote, and I'll explain it in a minute. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with a rumor that will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. In other words, this, God has given us the deposit of what it means to be in his presence by giving us of his spirit. It's a deposit. Matter of fact, even the Greek word that Jesus talks about in John chapter 14 and 16 is the word erebon. It's the idea of giving a deposit for something that's going to be fulfilled later. Meaning that when we are given his spirit, when we trust in Christ, it is a deposit of what's going to come later. We will experience him in all the fullness, fullness of who he is. And we've heard about it. And some of us think we have desires that things in this world just can't satisfy. And Lewis said, that means that I was made for another world. I was created for something even deeper. And the pages of the New Testament are rustling that this isn't all there is. That when life gets done here, that's just the, this is the warm-up act. The real performance is when we enter into glory and we get to be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Last night I, had, I saw a special called Simon Peter and the Last Supper. And Simon Peter and the Last Supper, it has him uh, being in prison right before he dies as these Roman centurions are interviewing him about the, what had happened to him. And at the end of it, he goes off to die. And he even, he tells the, the Roman centurion, he goes, I'm ready to go. I've been away from Jesus far too long. I can't wait to see him. Yeah, I have no fear of death. I'm going to enter into the presence of him who is. Everything about this world is just, is rustling. Telling us about the glories that awaits. 
the true worship that we'll be doing forever and ever and ever. Remember, missions is not the ultimate goal. Worship is. We were created to worship God. God created us for his glory. That's why we'll be falling down at his throne. And it's not some Matt groaning, Simpson-like, diaper-wearing, cloud-floating, harp-playing character. It is us experiencing God in all his fullness. Those are characters, caricatures. The wonder of seeing God in all he is, for all he has done, and what he showed even upon glory. We will celebrate him and say, like the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We will experiencing him in the pureness of who he is, with the pureness and fullness of who we are. And that was all afforded to us by what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. That's where it begins, by trusting in him. Some people think that's the finish line. It's not. It's the starting line. Some people say, well, I got him saved. Well, now you got him at the starting line. Let's continue on. Glory, that's the finish line. We'll be experiencing him in all his fullness. The question that I have for you today, I mean, for one, are you truly worshiping the Lord? Is it truly a response of your heart? My next question is this. If it's not, are you truly redeemed? Are you truly redeemed? Do you truly know who Jesus is? As we go through this series, we're going to be examining more about what the church is to be. Just picking apart, camping on this passage in Acts 2. What is God? Who is God to you? Do you truly believe in Him? Do you truly, have you truly placed your faith and trust in Him and Him alone for salvation? Have you allowed Him to forgive you of your sins? Have you received Him as Lord and Savior? And has He become the heartbeat and passion of your life? then you can today by placing your faith in Him. Scripture is clear that whoever believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's simple as that. But if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So place your faith in Him. And ask God for those that are, who say, I'm, I am saved, but I've become dull. God has become dull to me. It's not that God has become dull to you. You've become dull to God. Ask God to revive and renew your heart that you might get a further glimpse of him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you know that the pages of the New Testament are wrestling. Lord, that we've heard about them. And one day we will no longer be on the outside looking in into eternity, but we will be in eternity itself, experiencing your presence in all of your fullness, delighting in who you are. Lord, we know that this is a spiritual act. And Lord, we know that we are fleshly creatures. Lord, help us to, to take up our cross each and every day, to die to self, to consider ourselves crucified with Christ, us no longer living, but Christ, you who are living in us. Lord, help us to see and appropriate that truth to our own lives. Help us to see you in all your fullness, in all your glory. And Lord, let that overflow from our hearts to other people, just like we praise our favorite movie or team or play or music. Lord, may we praise you and may it be a natural overflow of our heart unto others that just like it did during the apostolic time that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Lord, we long for that. We long for people coming to the saving knowledge of who you are because, Lord, our hearts just overflow with praise so much that they want to know who you are. Just like when we tell them about our favorite movie, they want to see it. Lord, may the praise of our heart be full. May it be pure. May it be truly spirit and in truth. And may it be in full accordance with who you are. Lord, may we be truly confessing our sins and surrendering our wills to you on a daily basis that your glory and words might be seen and felt within our own hearts and souls. May we joyfully reflect back to you what you mean to us. And Lord, may your glory drop on this place. May your spirit be thick and evident touching hearts and minds as he works his will by bringing us to conviction of our sin and in full confession and repentance. Lord, may we be convicted and may we be drawn. May we seek to be holy because we know without holiness no one will see the Lord. Lord, please let your glory dwell here and may your name be exalted so much that when truly, when an unbeliever or outsider enters, that they say truly and wholeheartedly, surely God is in this place. Lord, receive glory through us. And if those who are here today who have not yet trusted in you, I pray, I pray that you place a conviction upon their heart and draw them to yourself. Lord, let them not hold on to their sin. Let them not make any more excuses. But draw them. Convict them. 
Because, Lord, let them see that you desire their happiness, not their harm, not their hurt, not their humiliation. Lord, you desire them to have joy, true, lasting, and abiding joy in you. So we give you ourselves, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and ask you to glorify yourself in us. In the name that is above every name, we pray. Amen.